a podcast for dads who love music, made by dads who love music. And now, your hosts, Josh and Joe. Hello, and welcome to Dad Rocks, the podcast about being a dad and loving music and how the two intersect in our lives. I'm Josh, and I'm here with my co-host, Joe. What's up, Josh? And our producer, Steve. Hey, guys. Our guest today is one of our favorite rock and roll music writers working today, Stephen Hyden. I first came across Stephen's writing on the pop culture website Grantland in the early 2010s, where he was a staff music writer. I instantly connected to his unique writing style and his pop culture takes. In 2016, Stephen started the Celebration Rock podcast, which he hosted for several seasons. That year, he also released the book, Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, about famous pop music rivalries. Since then, he's released several more books, including last year's This Isn't Happening about Radiohead's Kid A and 2019's Hard to Handle, which he co-wrote with former Black Crows drummer and Dad Rock's guest, Steve Gorman. He's currently a culture critic at Uproxx and consulting producer of the documentary on HBO Max, Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage. Steven, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, we've been talking about this for a long time. I'm glad <laughs> yes, you finally have. made it happen. Yeah, sir. And you had Steve on the show, and you had my friend Rob Mitchum on the show. So yeah. it was only a matter of time before <laughs> I would get on here. That's correct. We figured we'd have you on before we had Gorman on. So it's uh, we were. <laughs> yeah, it's been a little so true, but we're happy to have you here. We're really excited to talk to you today. Yeah. Well, I'm 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 happy to be here. So yeah, we're all huge fans of yours. We've read all your books, articles over the years, but we want to start with your latest project, Woodstock 99. You're not only a consulting producer, but you're on camera as well as a talking head. All three of us watched it. We all thought it was very compelling. Tell us how this project came about and how you got involved. Well, um, I did a podcast with The Ringer in 2019 called Break Stuff that was a reported podcast about Woodstock 99. It was an eight episode series. And I think the podcast turned out really well. You know, I interviewed a lot of the same people that are in the movie. I interviewed John Cher, Michael Lang, some of the uh, attendees that are in the movie I interviewed. I interviewed the security guard that's in the movie, the EMT, like a lot of the guests that are in the movie are also on my podcast. Flash forward to 2020. And I got an email from Sean Fennessy and Noah Malle at The Ringer. Sean, I've known for a long time. He was my editor at Grantland, and now yep. he's one of the top people at The Ringer. And they told me that they were going to be doing this documentary series for HBO called Music Box. And one of the films that they were going to be making was about Woodstock 99. Director of the film, Garrett Price, he pitched the movie without knowing about my podcast. It was just a coincidence that he wow. pitched it. But they, since The Ringer was in charge of uh, you know, they, they produced my my podcast and they were in charge of this movie thing. They said, well, we know someone who just did this podcast on it. And, you know, maybe you'd want to work with him uh, as a consulting producer on the movie. So so they brought me on for that. And then I ended up in the movie just as someone who knew a lot about Woodstock 99 and, and, and could talk about it. Awesome. You know, we're, we're similar in age. I was 20 that summer in 99 and I was dying to go. Um, I'm here. We're all here in Jersey. So it wasn't that far away. I was huge into Rage Against the Machine, Chili Peppers, really a lot of like alt rock. I was like all in on like modern alt rock. And thankfully I dodged a bullet big time. <laughs> I mean, after I knew about, you know, as I was watching it on pay-per-view, I kind of knew, but obviously watching the documentary is like really hits, hits home yeah. the whole time. I'm like, wow, I could have been there. I really 
should have been there, really. I was so into all that music. But if you were in the East Coast like us, in the Jersey, New York area, would you have gone, you think? Probably not, because I wasn't really into the big headliners. I wasn't yeah. like a Limp Bizkit fan or a Korn fan. I like Metallica. I really wasn't into that whole scene. I've, I've actually come around a little bit more in retrospect. I've... Um, Corn more than Limp Biscuit, I would say. I've actually I've interviewed Jonathan Davis a couple of times. I interviewed him for my podcast, mm-hmm. Break Stuff, and then like the year before that, I interviewed him for a piece I wrote for the Ringer tied to the 20th anniversary of Follow the Leader. And I just thought he was a really entertaining guy and pretty thoughtful. And I actually think he's really good in the movie. I, he's yeah. one of the yeah, really good interviewees and. Uh, I think it was good to have his voice in there because I thought he was a good spokesperson for new metal in general. Because I think the you know the movie it's interesting because like my podcast was four hours basically it was it, probably a little bit more than four hours all told. Like each episode was about forty five minutes, so it's longer than the movie. But in a way, it, it was a little bit narrower. Like I didn't talk a lot about the culture stuff that the film does. My podcast went much deeper into the planning of Woodstock 99, which I think works well for that medium. You know, it's not terribly cinematic to talk about city council meetings and all of the regulations that the uh, Woodstock 99 organizers basically didn't follow leading up to the festival. I mean, there were so many, basically all the problems that occurred at the festival were foreseeable ahead of time. And they were foreseen by some people in the local government. But I think there was so much momentum for this festival that people felt like, well, let's just roll with it. You know, yeah. it's Woodstock. It'll work out. It's and free. Yeah. And, and then, you know, you see the results of that. Whereas Garrett Price, the director of the film, I think one thing that really interested him about this story was the larger cultural context yeah. of it. You know, 1999, totally. Girls Gone Wild, Columbine, Napster, things like that. Yep. All of which I think are, are totally relevant to the story. How you guys doing today? Welcome to Woodstock. There is a sixth sense that you develop when you spend your life going to venues. Woodstock, baby. I can tell you a hundred feet away what the energy in that venue is going to be like. It was not your parents' Woodstock. You could feel something bubbling. In pop culture, there's this dark energy coming from young white males that entertainment is perpetuating. I have to say that at the time, I hated a lot of that music. <laughs> and, and and probably because I was, you know, I came of age in the early 90s. Like, I was in college in 99. I was 21. Yeah. So I came, you know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam. Oh, sure. That whole right. generation, which, as the film talks about, it was just much more, I think, politically progressive and socially progressive. Mm-hmm. Yep. And one of the fascinating things about new metal was how it, I think, reacted against that. I think there was this idea yep. that like a lot of those early 90s bands were preachy and mm-hmm. not very fun. Yes. And the late 90s, it was about like living it up and living large. I think it was a pretty nihilistic time. Mm-hmm. I think yes. it was about like doing what, what felt good yes. for you in the moment. And you see that manifested at Woodstock 99, like where I think a lot of people just felt like I'm going to do what makes me happy, even if it hurts somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yes. Just quickly, like, because at the, you know, 
my wife and I were watching this basically the second half last night. And I mentioned right before it came on the dock about how there was supposed to be a Woodstock 50. And, you know, talking about all the issues that 99 happened when they, they supposedly had, you know, unforeseen issues come up. Do you think some of the, the same issues that plagued 99 plagued the coordination of what would have been the 50th anniversary of Woodstock? Or do you think it was just no one had interest because there were so many amazing festivals going on, you know, still, you know, around the country? Well, um, I mean, one issue in 99 was that the organizers were really slow to get a mass gathering permit, which is this permit. It was actually created after the first Woodstock. Hmm. And it's this permit that all large events have to get in the state of New York where you basically have to show that you have a proper infrastructure in place to hold like hundreds of thousands of people. Mm. And in 99, they were very, they like, they missed all these deadlines in, in, huh. in getting that permit. And which was like one of the many red flags of the festival. And, you know, the reason that they were late, they were just, they were disorganized, but they also like were behind, I like, got a lot of the benchmarks on say hiring security or having like a proper plumbing system in place so that water pipes wouldn't be broken, you know, That's... and creating a huge mess or having a, a proper number of porta potties or having a, you know, a, a workable traffic plan, like all of the logistical things that again, when you see the actual festival, all those things went wrong, you know, because it wasn't properly right. planned. Flash ahead 20 years to Woodstock 50, they were doing the same thing. I mean, they were behind on getting the mass gathering permit. They were behind on like a lot of the other sort of logistical planning that like local governments require when you yeah. want to have an event like this. And the difference is, is that in 2019, local governments didn't just roll over. You know, and they were like, no, yeah. you're not going to do this. I mean, I, I, I believe that Woodstock 50 was going to be in about the same area. Mm-hmm. as 99. So, you know, in that respect, you feel like, okay, it seems like people learn their lesson uh, there. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I mean, the thing about Woodstock that differentiates itself from like modern festivals is that, which is not to say that modern festivals are, are perfect. There's a lot of problems with modern festivals. But mm-hmm. if you look at like a Coachella or a Bonnaroo or a Lollapalooza, I mean, they take place at the same place every year, right. you know, and, mm-hmm. they, and they have the same staff relationships and staff. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's not like Woodstock where they're like, we're going to have it in this place where there's never been a music festival before. And we're going to create everything that needs to be created for this thing to work on the fly, you know, because when you do things that way, it's just more likely that there's going to be a screw up, especially now. I mean, if you, comp- you know, like Woodstock 50 trying to kind of do their Woodstock thing in a modern context, it just looked even more, antiquated, I think, compared to like a lot of modern festivals. And I do want to say one thing all three of us loved, and when I texted it to the the guys, and they're like, yeah, definitely, is the the fact that you mentioned in the doc how 69 was not as amazing and, you know, utopian as everyone believes. Like, my father went to Woodstock, and he always said, I went to Woodstock and never heard a note of music. And I later found out from a friend of his that he, their whole group got split up on 17 or whatever road was taking them up there. And my dad said he had always just ended up in a blanket sick, like on a hill somewhere. And he just never heard anything. I always thought that was kind of weird, but then now hearing other stories and seeing that quote from you about how it wasn't you know, amazing. There was a lot of issues. I can totally, you know, understand that he was, you know, in fact, telling the truth. And it, it wasn't such an amazing situation in 60. Yeah. I mean, you can really see how the evolution of technology affects how things like this are perceived because in 1969, you didn't have people on the ground, 
you know, filming things as they happened. Right. And, and obviously there was the film that came out, but it wasn't like Woodstock 99 where it was on pay-per-view and it was broadcasted out to the world as it was happening. Or the way Fire Festival was where you had social media in play right. and it was even more immediate and more overwhelming. I mean, that's why Fire Festival from the jump was instantly known as this huge debacle. It, it was because of social media. Even, you know, with, with Woodstock 99, it really wasn't until like weeks later that people really knew the full extent of everything that happened. Like right. once, mm-hmm. you know, magazines like Spin started doing these huge exposés about all the sexual assaults and all of the like price gouging and all the you know, other sins that were committed there, you know, that's when people started to get a full perspective on it. That was 20 years ago, so it still took a, like a few weeks, mm-hmm. whereas now it's instantaneous. Yeah. You, you've got like thousands of people tweeting about mm-hmm. You know how terrible a music festival is, and the Schadenfreude that people had with Fire Festival as it went down in flames. That didn't happen necessarily with Woodstock '99. You know, it, yep. it took a bit, it was a bit a lag time. But yeah, with Woodstock, just the mythology of that festival—it's so powerful. And you know, th- this is something I talked about in my podcast. I very early on, I was very struck by the fact that. You know, there's one Woodstock in the 60s, but there's two Woodstocks in the 90s, (laughs) you know, which I think speaks to just the cultural power that boomers had at that time and how they could force this nostalgia for something that existed, you know, many decades earlier, like on this new generation. And, you know, just to quickly, you know, just thinking about you and your podcast, 36 from the Vault, I'm sure you remember all the, the Grateful Dead Bears shirts and stuff in the mid 90s and stuff, especially right after Jerry passed away. And it was almost like they were monetizing on, you know, this nostalgia. And uh, yeah, what's funny with the dead, because like when I was growing up, I didn't like the dead at all, like when I was a teenager. And I think part of it was because their media image was so tied to the 60s mm-hmm. and this sort of hippie ideal that I just thought was was corny. Even though like, I liked a lot of music from the 60s and I love a lot of classic rock. I mean, I've written a lot about classic rock, so I obviously have an affinity for that. But that sort of like hippy-dippy side of the 60s, I'd never really connected with. And when you look at the dead now, I feel like that 60s thing that was projected on them in the 90s has really gone away. Mm-hmm. I I don't feel like they're necessarily, I mean, you know, maybe like in a broad sense, like with people who don't know anything about them at all. But yeah. to me, it just seems less prominent now oh, than definitely. it was in the 90s. Yeah. In a way, I feel like when people talk about the dead, like people that love the dead, they talk more about the 70s now than the 60s. Like the 70s now are talked about as being their prime. Uh, certainly as a live band. When I went to the depot, I never got there on time. Went down to the depot, never got there on time. When a train's rolling down, she's rolling down the line. Mr. J. that's been interesting to witness in general the 60s now like no one talks about the 60s really anymore it was such Mm. a big deal in the 90s 
but you know, nostalgia tends to have about a 20 year shelf yeah. life. Yep. It's like now people, you know, I guess are nostalgic about the 90s or maybe the 80s yeah, a little late, bit. Yeah, late 80s, early 80s, 90s. Big yeah. Time. yeah, is a big mm-hmm. thing. But you don't hear about the 60s. I mean, you never hear about the 50s. Because like the 50s mm-hmm. were also, it was 50s nostalgia like in the 80s when I was growing right. up. And then it was the 60s and then you know, the, like the 70s was a big deal. Those things all fade away uh, eventually. <laughs> With the exception of like the things that really matter, like Bob Dylan and the Beatles, right. people still love that. Right. But for the most part, a lot of that 60s stuff is has really faded. And it's usually just that late 60s period too, like that 67 to, to right. 70 period too. But even that, yeah. I feel like is way less of a touchstone now than it was when I was growing up. Yeah. Like when I was growing up, it was like, you know, Oliver Stone was making <laughs> movies about the doors, you know, that mm-hmm. were major films and... Yeah, you had all these Woodstocks. It was such a big thing, I think. And looking at the 60s as like this sort of perfect time or a time that like if you weren't alive in the 60s, you really missed out. And that was something that boomers like hung on Generation Xers all the time. And like, and the Woodstock revivalism was part of that. It's like, well, you know, we're going to give you our Woodstock, but it's never going to be as good yes, as ours. I, you know, I, I talked about this in my podcast I was, um, the weekend of Woodstock 99, I was in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, covering uh, an experimental aircraft convention, like the least cool thing in the world <laughs> you could be doing. And I was there interviewing attendees and like the news of the riots had broken. It looks like an absolute war zone inside here. I can't tell you, there are cars turned over right by the stage. It's crazy, they ruined a good thing. I came here to watch music. I didn't come here to fear for my life because a bunch of psychos started uh, setting tractor trailers on fire. It's a new era, you know? America gotta wake up. Even before the rubble stopped smoldering, the explanations had begun for the mayhem and destruction that had finished off Woodstock 99. This Woodstock was all about money. Who knows, there was so much ecstasy and acid and everything else flowing, who knows what the mentality, it's, it's a lack of mentality. But alongside the good-natured debauchery, there was an undercurrent of male aggression young women as the all-too-frequent targets. Just because a girl wants to go crowd surfing or whatever, that doesn't give the guys the right to molest them, you know what I'm saying? Woodstock 99, goodbye and maybe good riddance. And I remember talking to this couple from California and they were just going on and on about how the younger generation had ruined Woodstock because Woodstock was this perfect garden created by boomers and like these pesky Gen Xers just destroyed it, you know? And I, I mean, that was what I think a lot of the people of that age probably felt at that time. But yeah, it, it, it's built, I think, on a lot of romanticism that isn't necessarily true. Yeah, I totally, you're mentioning, you know, growing up in the 80s, same age, I was totally all in on like everything classic rock, the 60s, my parents were baby boomers, perfect age. I bought into all of that. For sure. Same. And you mentioned The Doors. Uh, I want to bring up many thoughts on this classic rock. You recently wrote about The Doors, defending The Doors. I have to give you your props because they're one of those bands that it, me and Steve and Josh and our friends on our like music text I'm always like, why come people don't like The Doors? People are always shitting, shitting on The Doors. Doors are great Yeah. to me. I mean, Jim Morrison could be a buffoon. Yeah. I get it. But there's a lot of worse bands to kind of rip on. So I have to give yeah, you your they've, props. They've become this 
punching bag for yeah. people. I mean, I wrote about this in my piece. I think Eric Clapton has suffered the worst of that generation in terms of his reputation, just yes. going down the tubes. <laughs> yes. Um, but the doors are like maybe second, you know? Mm-hmm. And because, yeah, like when I was, when I was first starting to get into music, it was right in the middle of like one of the perpetual Doors revivals that have happened mm-hmm. many times over the course of the last 50 years. Yeah, like late 80s, early 90s, like the Doors were like pretty hip and, and cool. She's the queen of cool And she's the lady who waits Since her mind left school It never hesitates she won't waste time on elementary talk. And I really liked them as a kid. And then I read uh, No One Here Gets Out Alive, the famous biography. And I was like, oh, Jim Morrison's kind of a jerk. <laughs> so then I didn't like them for a while. And then I came to this realization that I was like, you know, it's more fun to like the Doors than to hate the Doors. Because one, I do think that they have a lot of good songs. And also yeah. like... The ridiculousness of Jim Morrison, I think, is mostly endearing to me. Like the Lizard King stuff and the leather pants and all of the, you know, decadence. Uh, Like you can kind of laugh at it, but it's also kind of awesome. And it's also kind of stupid, but it's also really cool. You know, it's like there's like two things can be true at the same time with them. And yeah, I don't know. I just feel like I agree with you. I think there's definitely worse bands. And there's definitely bands that are like way less interesting, you know, like yeah. and way less colorful. I'll defend the doors. I think I'm ahead of the curve on that. I, mm-hmm. and, I and I actually heard a lot of people say to me, I actually really like the doors. I don't know why people crap on them all the time. Mm-hmm. I was expecting to take more guff for it. Yeah. But I most of the reaction I heard was like what you just said. Like, I actually like the doors. Why do people why are oh, people good. so hard on That's them? Good to hear. So I think there's like a silent doors community out there that yes. they've been waiting. And now they're going to rise. And I mean, the end still is like such an experimental song on their first album. Right. Oh, yeah. That first album is like a greatest hits album. Like every yeah. song mm-hmm. on there is like is great. And I love their later albums, too. I, I love L.A. Woman. Yeah, I like the album. bluesier albums. Yeah. I really like a lot. I mean, I like all their albums. I even like the Soft Parade, which isn't like that good, but mm-hmm. I appreciate it. And that was like around the time he's doing Celebration of the Lizard live, which mm-hmm. again, it's like it straddles the line between awesome and stupid in a way that I just find totally compelling because it's like even when it doesn't work, I'm definitely entertained by it. You know, like when Jim yes. Morrison fails, he's still interesting. You know, I would still take him over like a lot of front men who, when they fail, are exactly. just boring. Like he's never yeah. boring. You no. can be blown away by him or you can laugh at him. But either way, it's like I'm entertained mm-hmm. by his antics, I have yeah. to say. They were, I mean, they were also a very unique band and they didn't have a bass player. They weren't like a hard rock band, but they had this aura about them of being like almost kind of aggressive but they were playing basically blues and jazz you know as a rock band well and you know people love the velvet underground and i love the velvet underground too but you know the the doors in the velvet underground have more in common than like cool people want to admit you know if you aren't sympathetic to lou reed if you're going to look at him skeptically 
in the same way that people look at Jim Morrison skeptically, you can nitpick things that the Velvet Underground did and say, well, this is pretentious. You it's know, they're point. overreaching yeah. here, which I'm not saying people should do that because I love the Velvet Underground. <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's pretentious at all. I think it's brilliant. But I'm just saying that, like, people cut them slack in a way that they don't cut slack for the doors. Yeah. Yes. Some of that, too, is like this lingering, like, and, you know, I know you guys are East Coast guys, but this, like, lingering snobbery about California that comes from New York. You know, that, like, New York is, like, where the, you know, the intellectual people are, the cool people are. And, like, L.A. is just, like, you know, vacuous himbos, you know, who, yeah. you know, they're just out to get laid and not make art. And that's that's BS. I, I, I don't like that. I, I love I love LA music, like from the '60s on. You know, I think it's, it's such a great legacy, and yeah, I I think if you look at punk history, post-punk history, you can't talk about it without talking about the Doors. They're like a huge influence on on that whole thing, and I think they still are influential in a lot of ways that other bands of that era are not. Well, sp- speaking of classic rock, I also want to talk about one of your other books, uh, Twilight of the Gods. Journey to the End of Classic Rock, which I loved. Thank you. And you made a good point how we were really reliant on FM Classic Rock Radio. And that's how I, all my knowledge, I feel like my base knowledge of the songs that I've heard the most were really on Classic Rock, the New York Classic Rock station here, Q1043. And to kind of tying it to the Grateful Dead, one reason I didn't really, I never got into them at the time was because they weren't really played, especially here in New York. A lot besides maybe Casey Jones you'd hear once in a while or trucking trucking. Maybe that was it. So you made some other references. I know in the book of like bands that you didn't hear growing up on those stations either. Elvis Costello is another one. I didn't really know till I was in college. He never really got played either. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting with the dead, because I think one reason why they've really, I think blown up in the last say 10 years from being again considered this 60s cult band that maybe older people liked to being a band that's like really like cross-generational band there's people of all ages now that are really into the dead i think the internet had a lot to do with that because like you said they weren't really playing on the radio outside of a small handful of songs and if you wanted to get into their live stuff you had to know someone who was into the band and like you'd be doing tape trading and stuff now if if there's a kid that wants to get into the dead they go on the re-listen app and they have access to like 2,000 shows And they all sound like pretty good to great. You know, it's just very easy now for anyone to get into the band in a way that it wasn't for like people our age, you know, people in their, you know, I'd be like, I didn't like the dead because the only live stuff I heard was like from the late eighties, which I didn't really like that stuff at the time, like the Brent Midland years. I thought that stuff was super corny when I was a teenager. I mean, I love it now, but I didn't like it then. I wasn't hearing like primo seventies shows i wasn't hearing like cornell 77 or something right. when i was 14. as far as like twilight of the gods goes you know that's an interesting book that's like probably my favorite book that i've that i've written it's definitely the most personal book that i'll probably ever write that's the book that i probably would have wanted 
that's the book I envisioned writing when I was a teenager, hmm. you know, something like that. Thing about well, that book is it was interesting because like when people older than me read that book, you know, like the boomer generation, some people like it, but some people really don't like it because the the perspective of that book is like you're saying of a person who wasn't alive when a lot of that music was being made, but like learned about it later on from classic rock radio, mm -hmm. from books, from rock documentaries. So really learning about it through this sort of like filter of mythology that was created after the fact. And that was, a, you know, and, and people who were alive at the time, they don't like that perspective. But I'm like, there's been enough books written by people who were there. To me, the point of the book was to write from that like secondhand perspective that I think is very widespread. I mean, obviously it's widespread because lots of people my age love the music of the 60s and 70s. There's people half my age in their 20s who love that music. You know, there's a really big audience of people who were not there at the time, but they, for whatever reason, gravitate to that era. And that was what I wanted to write about. Like, why is that? Like, what is it about this era that attracts people? And, and what is it about these filters of FM radio, of books, of documentaries? Like, what does that add to the music? You know, and how does it change it? And I just thought that was really interesting. And it just seemed like it was time for someone to to write about that. But again, you know, the boomers, some boomers don't like that. They want it to be about them. They want it to be about, which I understand on some level because, you know, the books I've written lately are about bands I've grown up with. Like I wrote a book about Radiohead. I've been with them my whole life, yeah. you know, as a music fan. They came out when I was 14 and I've seen every album as it's come out. Um, I'm writing a book right now about Pearl Jam who it's the same thing. So it does give you a different perspective. But, you know, again, I, I think that the perspective I had in Twilight of the Gods is, is also valid for talking about that kind of music. Well, you, you read my mind because my next question was going to talk about segue into the Radiohead book, which I pre-ordered and I was so excited to dive into when I got it. It was great. I loved how you kind of went through the whole band history, not just that album. I had a funny story I wanted to tell you about the first time I heard Kid A. I was in college. And the big alt rock station here in New York, 92.3, then I think it was the night before the album dropped, they played the album in its entirety at night. And my buddies and I who were there, we talk about it a lot, how we were, we were huddled around our little radio in our dorm room. And there was so much excitement about <laughs> what is this going to sound like? And when everything in its right place, you know, started, we're like, you know, it was all dead quiet. Excited to hear this, what was going to come. And it was, you know, very weird and, and abstract and we're all blown away. When I was reading the book, it put me back into that, sitting in that dorm room and you really did a great job of just putting it, you know, the context of that album and everything. So it was, it was a well, great, thank you. great read, great read. Yeah. I mean, 
thank you. And yeah, I mean, and with that book, I, I just thought it was interesting to um, not just talk about that album, but to talk about Radiohead's career and looking at Kid A as like the turning point or like the fulcrum that, you know, you, you could talk about what led up to that album, like what caused them to make a record like that. And for me, it really begins with Creep, them having this hit, and really for like several years, like longer than people remember, like they were looked at as this like one hit wonder yep. and as being like kind of a corny band. Like you read the reviews of the Benz in Spin and Rolling Stone and it's just making jokes about them being like the spin doctors and, you know, and Bush. And, yeah. I couldn't believe those reviews you had it in the book. I think some, some of the yeah. reviews I was, I couldn't believe it. I didn't actually, that was another album that was not played. I never knew, really knew of it till okay. Computer, you know, era and getting into college. I said, Oh, what is this Ben's album? I feel like that didn't really get a lot of play either. Like on MTV. Well, it got, a lot, it I, got played quite a bit on MTV. Yeah. I, I remember those videos like high and dry and yeah. Uh, yeah. just like those were pretty big videos. I mean, that's how I knew about the record. I mean, I think the, it took a while for the Ben's to catch on mm-hmm. because again, I think people expected Radiohead to have creep and that, and that was it. Yeah. And there wasn't really a lot of, expectations for the Benz, but the Benz was like this slow burning record that people gradually discovered and just being like, wow, this is a great record. And it really like teed up okay computer. I think there was like a lot of excitement for okay computer. I have to say like, as much as I love kid a okay computer is still the one for me. Like, Like if I were to like, it's probably still like my favorite album of like the last 25 years. Wow. I wrote about Kid A because I think Kid A in a lot of ways is more interesting to write about because you can talk about the album and then there's just the context of it. Like when it came out at the turn of the century, I mean, it's similar to the Woodstock 99 doc. Like Woodstock 99 is a fascinating event, but it's also a way for you to talk about all these other things that were happening in the culture. Yep. And with Kid A, it was like, you know, talking about Y2K and like how Kid A got retconned into being a September 11th record, you know, like a year after the fact. It just the idea of Kid A, I mean, I write in my book, I call it the overture of the 21st century, that like the vibe of the 21st century, I think, is really captured well on that record. But OK Computer, just like as a music album and, and, a, and an event, uh, is like so big for me. Like I, when that record came out, I was like, "Oh, this is my Beatles. Mm-hmm. This is like my or Sergeant like, Pepper." You know, like, like, yes. like whatever people felt when Pet Sounds came out. That that's mm-hmm. how I feel about this record. Like it really was that big of a deal, and I still think it's like a just a fantastic, beautiful record. has just had that ability to make their albums feel like events in a way that I can't think of another rock band of their generation who even comes close to that. I mean, even like a Moonshade Pool, like when that came out, 
Mm-hmm. And maybe this is just my Twitter feed, but like I felt like people were like live tweeting, listening to that record for the first time. You know, and this is a band at that point that had been around for like 25 years. Like what other bands of the 90s, even if they're putting out good records, if they put out something, it doesn't feel it still feels like, oh, this is like a nice record. It doesn't feel like an event necessarily, right. but Radiohead still has the ability to do that. Unfortunately, they don't make many records yeah. anymore. And mm-hmm. I'm curious uh, if they'll make another album. I mean, like yeah. Johnny Greenwood and Tom York have this other band, The Smile, yep. which I just find very interesting that like, you two fifths of the band and Nigel yeah. Godrich is involved in that too. I don't know. I mean, I don't think they'll ever break up. But I do wonder, like, what the... St- it doesn't seem terribly urgent for them to be making albums, yeah, I, right. I guess, at this point in their career. Yep. But who knows? They could release an album tomorrow. You know, maybe maybe they've been working on something in secret, and I could be totally yes. wrong. So who, so who knows? <laughs> now, for me, uh, interesting, I brought this up on the podcast a while ago. I, I'm a little younger than, than both Steven and Joe. I was not into Radiohead. In high school, uh, OK Computer was huge. I was almost like tried to not be into what was cool. I never got Radiohead until I was much older. My college roommate, we had Amnesiac poster, a Kid A poster, and I was just like, they suck. You know, critics love them. They just give them five-star reviews every time. They must not be great. Do you feel that, you know, Radiohead, like you said, the Benz didn't get a great review, but do you feel like they're at that point where they can't be touched anymore? Like, you, you know, or do you think that people can still be critical of them? I think... People have been crit- I, that whole thing about like, well, critics just are default loving them. I mean, that was just my opinion. Like, right? You know, no, no, I yeah. know. But like, that, I don't think that's ever been true. I mean, like, Kid A got very mixed reviews. I mean, in England, it got totally ripped. I mean, it was it was actually better received in America than it was in England, and that's actually been true throughout Radiohead's career. Like, Creep was a hit in America first before England. Uh, you know, they, they toured in America a lot mm-hmm. in the 90s. I mean, to me, in this, I write about this in the book, I, I, it's fascinating to me that Radiohead has this image of being this esoteric band that, like, average people can understand. That you need, like, a PhD <laughs> yeah. to understand them because they started at a very different place at the beginning of their career, you know, where, again, they were looked at as being just this dumb rock band that was from England, but, like, they were sort of, like, ripping off the Pixies and American, like, alternative rock. And it really wasn't until Kid A, I think, that they had this turn in their image where they went to the opposite extreme, that instead of being looked at as, like, a dumb alt-rock band, now they're, like, these, you know, snobs, twiddling knobs in the studio or something. It's not music for for regular people. But I don't know, like for me, like I've always looked at Radiohead as being super emotional music, almost to the point of not being cool at all. Like I I actually think there's something very, there's something very deeply uncool about Radiohead 
because, I mean, you listen to Tom York's voice. It's like this very beautiful choir boy voice. And he's singing like these sort of operatic arias over chiming guitars. Like, when is that ever considered cool? You know, I mean, there's there's something very yeah. earnest at the core of what they do. I think even on an album like Kid A, that again, to me, is like hyper emotional. It's not like detached emotionally at all. And I don't know. I mean, I guess Radiohead haters wouldn't relate to that opinion in the least. But I think really, if you actually listen to those records, like a song like High and Dry or uh, Fake Plastic Trees, mm-hmm. like, is that really like esoteric? Again, I just feel like it's like a geyser of emotion. Yeah, They're almost like, sure. wow, settle down, man. <laughs> like, you know, if you want to go <laughs> in that music direction. For a film. Yeah, 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 yeah there, there's so many like just a crescendos of like yes. just beauty. And again, like if you're going to make fun of them for something, I guess make fun of them for that. Not that they're unemotional. Right. I can't relate to that at all. Like that criticism. I, 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 to me, it doesn't really sync with what the music actually is. Yeah. Now. You know, to get to a, another one of your books, Hard to Handle, with Steve Gorman, and we mentioned this on the episode with Steve, all three of us loved it. We had a text chain about it, <laughs> and that has evolved that over on the past year. And, um, yep. you know, for all three of us, we're huge Black Crows fans. I know you're a huge fan. You know, we yeah. talked to Steve about writing the book and how he just, you know, he was writing it with you instead of you, you ghost writing it. How was that whole experience for you? And did you see yourself more as like a producer than say a writer in, in that situation? Before I get into that, I just like want to say that uh, that book was super long at one point. It was probably yeah. about three times as long as what yeah. wow. actually came out. And one of the scenes that just killed me to cut out was in 1987, Steve and Rich Robinson, and I think Johnny Colt was there too. They were on the Black Rose tour bus, and OK Computer had just come out. Hmm. And Rich Robinson brings it on the tour yes. bus. And actually, I, I posted a screenshot of this on my Twitter because I love yes. this story so much. It's such a great story. Yes, but, uh, it. but Rich Robinson brings it on. He's like, you got to hear this album. It's unbelievable. So like, he puts it on the tour bus, and uh, Rich, Steve, and Johnny Colt listen to this album all the way through and at the end they're just like holy shit like this is like a masterpiece (laughs) and then Chris Robinson comes on the bus and like he hears the record and like he takes the CD out of the player and like he chucks it down the van (laughs) down the hallway of the tour bus and he's like fuck that shit there's no soul I don't want to hear that and like the rest of the band was just like super pissed at him for doing that I just love the mental image of that story (laughs) so much Um, but yeah I mean as far as writing the book goes I would say that like 98% or so of the words in that book are Steve's. Like they're his words. And what I did was I turned those words into a book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I know he's used the analogy of me being a producer. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Because basically what happened was is that we got together and we, we just did, I think we did about 40 hours of interviews. And I took those transcripts and I turned them into chapters, like a rough version of the chapters. And then he looked at them and he rewrote those. The transcripts started out as a base and then he would like remember other things he wanted to talk about or he'd want to rephrase things. And then I'd go through what he did and I would edit it basically. So, you know, the thing with Steve is that he's got a million stories about 
Chris Robinson being an asshole. <laughs> but it's like, right? But it's like, which stories do we use? Like, which ones right. mean the most? You know, the thing with that book is that it's a very fine line to draw in there, where you want to illustrate just how insane it was, but you also don't want it to be repetitive. That book could have gotten mind-numbingly annoying to read. You know, if if it had just been a litany of terrible stories about, about Chris Robinson. And I actually think there's like a lot of good stories in there about Chris Robinson yeah, and Rich yeah, Robinson. Mm-hmm. And they all come out very well around it. As I told Steve, like I knew nothing of Johnny Colt. And oh, yeah. it, it, like yeah. it was to me, it was like this eye opening experience compared to like what I was reading on the message boards and like what they said in the behind the music, because that's all I knew. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And and like those guys come a lot. I mean, the thing with Steve is that I mean, his memory is unbelievable. I mean, he just remembered so yeah. much stuff. Amazing. Amazing memory. And he also, I think, for a musician, he has an uncommon sense of perspective mm-hmm. on his own life and career. You read a lot of memoirs by musicians, and you can tell that, A, they don't know what's interesting about themselves. So, like, they spend a lot of time talking about their cars <laughs> or, like, their dogs just stuff that's super boring that no one cares about. And the writer involved in the book apparently didn't have the power to like step in and say, don't talk about this shit because no one cares. You know, don't talk about your childhood for like a hundred pages because unless you're Anthony Kiedis and Scar Tissue, which I'm just reading that book now. Oh, that's a great book. His childhood's amazing. That that book unbelievable is unbelievable book, so far. Right? Yeah. That's one. Of, that's what. Yeah, that's like one of the great memoirs that of like the last totally. twenty years. Totally. I'm not, even, I'm not even done with it, but I'm like, man, this book's pretty unbelievable. Yes. So yeah. So a most musicians don't have the perspective to know what's interesting about themselves, and and b they also aren't able to step outside of themselves and and comment on like what was significant about them or like why something worked and why it didn't. And Steve could do that. Like Steve could step outside and go, this was a great record or this wasn't a great record. And this is why it wasn't a great record. He made a great point that I thought was like a totally, like it's something that I've, I mean, I think I'm going to steal it from him. I think I have stolen it from him. It's a great critical observation. He was talking about how there's bands that are songs bands and bands that are like, musicianship bands and he was saying that like the rolling stones are a songs band like they have great songs and that's why they're popular little feet is a musicianship band yeah like they're a great band because they play really well together and he made the analogy like that oasis is a songs band they have great songs that stick in people's memory they have Wonderwall. they have don't look back in anger like these anthems and he was saying the black crows are a musicianship band the band that elevates the Robinsons material. I I really think that's true. If you listen to Amorica, 
or you listen to Southern Harmony, Remedy is a great song, but it's like, is Bad Luck Blue Eyes a great song or is it a great song because you hear that incredible Eddie Harsh yeah. organ on there and yeah. Mark Ford is playing an amazing guitar solo and those guys just sound so good together. So cohesive, yeah. I think that's a good song played by a great band. Yes. You know, and I think Amorica, that's, point. that's even more true of. Yes. Yep. There's a lot of good songs on there, but like the band is fucking incredible <laughs> yes. and it elevates that material. And yes. that's something that the Robinsons never really appreciated, I don't think, about certainly that lineup. They have some At great songs. The 97 lineup is fucking great. <laughs> yeah. If it's not the same guys, it's just not as good. I mean, I, I saw them on their last tour. And I thought they were great, that tour. Look, Steve's my friend, so I'm going to side with him. But I, I really do think that musically, like his drums, his style of playing, as long as he's there and they can get like a, a Luther Dickinson in there at least. Not exactly. so much like the... Uh, Jackie Green was Jackie Green was pretty good. He's all yeah. right. Yeah. I, don't th- I, I think obviously Mark Ford was the man. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I thought Luther Dickinson was quite good. Like when I saw them with Dickinson, I thought... Well, if it's not going to be Mark Ford, Dickinson, I think, was a really good replacement. And then Jackie mm-hmm. Green was OK. If it's just Chris and Rich, I don't I don't know. It's just not the same. But you know, but then again, I mean, look, people, if you want to go to that tour, life is short. Enjoy <laughs> music. You know, yeah, I mean, right. honestly, I will say, like, if they they were originally going to come to the Twin Cities, but like their show was canceled. So I was going to go if it was going to be here. But it seemed like they were doing like 60 shows or something. And it seems like at least half that. Because yeah. they got booked into these massive venues that are like way too big for them. But yeah, you know? and, and the last time I saw them at a venue like that, they were giving away tickets on that tour. So it was just, it's it's a bizarre thing to see. And like to see them almost packing these, seemingly packing these places in with like, a, basically it's just the Robinson Brothers and Sven Pippi and playing. Well, I don't think they're packing tickets. it. I don't think they're. I mean, I, well, I, I know, I'm just, you know, based on videos that I'm seeing, like, I, you know, it's so it's hard to see because you don't see the, you know, the, the crowd in the back. Yeah. The I mean, I know like here they were going to be playing Align Energy Center, which is like, a you know, 20,000 seat arena. Yeah. And that show was canceled because they can't sell that out. Oh, wow. I mean, mm-hmm. unless they're going to play with a bunch of other 90s bands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the only yep. way that would work. I mean, last time I saw them, they were playing a 2000 seat theater and they sold yeah. it out and it was great. Look, it's no sin to not be able to sell out an arena. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a hard job. And frankly, the last time the Black Crows were capable of doing that as a headliner was what, 1992? 93? I mean, like, yeah, and then they didn't time. do it. Then they were yeah. like, we're going to play theaters because we don't want to play arenas. But now I think the Robinsons have to play these venues because they took a huge advance from Live Nation. <laughs> Because they need money, and <laughs> now I don't know what they're gonna do. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this tour will do will go great, and God bless them. Yeah, you know, and I'm sure they'll be super happy after that. I bet, <laughs> I'm sure all their problems will be solved. Of course. of course, that's what I said before. They're kind of in the honeymoon phase right now, so we'll see how it how I plays don't out. Think, I don't think it's even a honeymoon right now. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I shouldn't speak too much out of turn. I, I suspect that. I mean, I don't think that they got back together because they love each other now. Mm, you sure. know, I think sure. they got together because what other options do they have to make money? So to shift gears, to kind of discuss, you know, the kind of one of our themes of the show, which is, you know, dad rocks uh, about fatherhood. We did have your buddy Rob Mitchum on. He's been on a couple of times, but the first time we had him on, we were discussing the term dad rock and you are, you know, unabashedly a lover of dad rock. 
So right. <laughs> what do you feel is dad rock and you know, why do you love it so much? I mean, I, I assume you talked to Rob about his role and yeah. the mm-hmm. dad rock. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's funny. I mean, Rob's a really good friend of mine and I feel like I, one of the better arcs of our relationship is arguing about his sky blue sky review. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I love that record. I yeah. love that album. And yeah, I'm like, Dude, you're a thousand percent wrong about that album. I mean, I wrote about this in my, in, in twilight of the gods. I think dad rock, it originated in the British press, right. and uh, there was a. Supposedly, the story I heard was that there was a guy, some writer for a British magazine, who saw a photo of Paul McCartney, Noel Gallagher, and Paul Weller in the studio recording a benefit single for like Bosnian refugees or something like that, and he made a, a crack about Dad Rock. You know that like Paul McCartney could be these guys' dad. And, you know, it's not cool to want to hang out with someone who's your dad's age, you know, if, mm-hmm. if you're young. So I think that was the original thing. And, I, you know, and it grew out of this, I think, idea that emulating music from the 60s and 70s was a bad idea if you were going to be a young, innovative musician. So it definitely had like a belittling aspect to it for a long time. And I think and Rob, too, like in his review, I mean, he uses it as a criticism but it's funny now because I feel like that's totally turned where and it's almost like, you know, like any derogatory term, like the people who it's applied to, they come to embrace it mm-hmm. like redneck, you know, like right. rednecks now call themselves rednecks. Mm-hmm. And I think like with dad rock, this idea that it's a negative thing has turned. And now, you know, you see like bands like Steely Dan, for instance, like mm-hmm. are actually cool now there's like a hipness <laughs> yes. to them yes and i mean i i love steely dan i think they're a great band but like there's this thing like where referencing them or turning them into a meme is like a pretty cool yep. thing or like fleetwood mac mm-hmm. is like not even there's no veneer of irony to that band anymore i don't think i mean tons of millennials and gen z people love fleetwood mac and they love stevie yep. nicks and they were not cool at all i no, think not growing all. up in our you know era we used to make fun of, of them all the time. Well, yeah, and and they're in the same class as Steely Dan. I yeah. think, you know, people listen to Steely Dan, like in the 90s, it was just like, well, this is just soft rock from the 70s. Yes. Whereas now I think people can just appreciate like how good the songs are and, you know, and, and some of the uh, trappings of the era are like just seen as being totally endearing now. You know, like the, yeah. the, like the fussiness, the studio musicians, a lot of the lyrical affectations of Steely Dan songs are just totally, people love it. And I think something that, like, in another time was looked at as being, like, you talk about Dad Rock's bands being passe. I think now people look at it as being comfortable. I think people have warm feelings for music that, like, they heard from their parents. There's something kind of, when you talk about cool music or hip music or, you know, underground music or experimental music, that's all well and good. But there's something about putting on a Fleetwood Mac record that's just really satisfying in a way that a lot of that stuff isn't. In the crystal in the knowledge of you Drove me through the mountain Through the crystal like and clear water fountain Drove me like a magnet To the sea
Yeah. Not to say that that stuff is bad, because like, I like a lot of that kind of stuff too. I have to say too that like for me, you know, like I'm in a I'm in a business where like I'm I'm old as hell <laughs> to still be a music writer. Uh, like I'm 43, I'm going to be 44. There's not a lot of people my age still doing it. Usually, if you're a person in my position, there's like one of two routes to take. The first route is to just glom onto anything that's young and trendy. So you mm-hmm. can like fool people into thinking that you're not 44 years old. <laughs> or you can just decide to be comfortable in your own skin and to be like, this is what I like. And it's not like I just like classic rock. I like a lot of, I like a lot of different kinds of music. I like a lot of artists who are 20 years old and making, yeah. you know, cutting edge shit. But I also like a lot of classic rock stuff. And I just feel like the worst thing a person can do as they age is to act like they're not aging. To be like, you know, like that uh, that meme of Stephen Buscemi from 30 Rock holding the skateboard. <laughs> hello, like, fellow kids. Hello, fellow kids. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's something so pathetic about that. Uh, yeah. About yeah. like an old person who is doing the hello kids thing. Yes. Uh, and on the other hand, I think it's kind of cool and endearing for an older person just to be like, hey, I'm old and I like this shit. And maybe you don't like it if you're young, but I like it and I'm going to be authentic about it. You know, there's yep. an authenticity, I think, that just comes from being comfortable in your own skin. So that's that's just how I've approached it. It's like, I'm going to, you know, this is who I am. People know who I am. It's just good to be honest about that. And some people won't appreciate it, but like the people who do will really appreciate it. Right. And you have two kids, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. I have a nine-year-old boy and a uh, four-year-old girl. And was being a father something that you always thought about being or was, you know, part of your life plans or was it, you know, something that you were just like, if it happens, it happens? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I never thought about it, really. I wasn't like as a kid thinking I'm going to be a dad or anything. <laughs> For me, it was meeting my wife and being like, oh, I want to have kids with her. You know, mm-hmm. it's that simple. Like, I loved her. I, I mean, I, I love her. I don't loved her. It's not yeah. past tense. <laughs> yeah. I still love her. And I was just like, yeah, I, this is, you know, I love her. She's my best friend. She's my soulmate. And I'm like, yeah, it'd be pretty awesome having kids with her. Like, I want to have a family with her. Mm-hmm. So nice. that's really it. If I hadn't met her, you know, I might not have had kids. I wonder how common it is for people to decide ahead of time that they're going to be a parent. Yeah. I guess it is for some people, but it wasn't for me. I mean, I was never like demonstrative with other people's kids. Right. I was not the guy who like is at a family function and is just going to clown around with the youngsters. You know, if anything, I'd be annoyed by kids. <laughs> But and in a way, I'm still kind of like that. But like, I love my kids. Yeah, that's, my mother-in-law is the same way. She's like, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of kids, but I love my kids and my grandchildren. Right. And, you know that that kind and of. I thing. Love, I, and I love, I love kids in my family. Like, you yeah. know, I've got right. nephews, and I've got, uh, you know, and and any friend of my kids, I love. But just like some random kid, I'm not gonna be like, oh hey, look at me, like uh, I'm I'm a charming guy, and we're gonna. <laughs> I'm going to make you laugh or there's a baby here. I'm going to pick up the baby. I mean, I remember before my son was born, I was really nervous about holding him because I was, I I had not held a lot of babies in my life. And I remember when he was born, it's amazing. Just the instincts that kick in that you don't realize are there. Yeah. Yeah, I just picked him up, picked him up without even thinking about it. Cradled his head. I just knew what to do. 
because it's like, well, this is this is my son, you know, and right. you just know how Instinct. to you just know how to do it. I didn't know that I would know that, but I did. And having two kids, I I only have have one toddler. Joe has two kids, but you know, we are always amazed at how much stuff you're putting out on social media, how much, you know, time you have for podcasts and like, how do you fit all of that in having two young children? Cause I mean, I, you know, having one, I feel like I have no time to do anything between my, you know, my job and watching him. So, well, <laughs> you know, I got really lucky in that, like when I was a teenager, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if what I like to do now, which is basically sit in my room, listen to music, yeah. watch movies and like write about it. What if I could just make this my life? You know, wouldn't that be amazing to do? And I didn't really think I could pull it off, but like I did, I was <laughs> able to pull it off. I realized this recently that I'm like, my office kind of looks like my room when I was growing up, except it's like a better <laughs> version of it. Like I've, like I've got more records, I got more CDs, I got like better books around me, but I'm just like surrounded by media for a lot of the day. Cause I, cause I work from yeah. home, I have a home office. You know, the things I love to do are just like my job. So, and it's cool too, because with my wife, it's like, if I want to go to a concert, it's also kind of my job to do it. <laughs> or I can say, can say that. Yeah. even if I'm not like writing about, like when I wrote Twilight of the Gods, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band were doing a tour where they were playing the river right, in its yeah. entirety. And I went to multiple dates on that tour and I, I drove, you know, hours to some shows. And it was like, if I wasn't writing a book, could I have justified that? <laughs> you know, probably not. You know, like we live in a house that was paid for by music criticism. Hmm. You know, like we drive a car that was paid for with music criticism. <laughs> yeah, you know, like I'm awesome. proud of that. So, yeah, it, I'm very, very, very lucky. But I also worked really, really hard and it took a long time to make that happen. I was just able to realize that childhood dream to like just sit in my room all day listening to music. Like that's, I want to make that my job. And yeah, I was able to do it. So at least for now, for now it's still working. <laughs> on one of our first episodes, we talked about the influences of our fathers on on us. Are you trying to get your son who's uh, older and you know, and even your daughter into the music you're listening to or are you kind of just letting them figure it out on their own? Yeah, not really. No, I, I, you know, I've, I've had people ask me that, like, oh, how do I get my kids into cool music? And I'm like, well, don't force it on them. <laughs> it's like maybe the, the big tip I would give, but you know, I, kids need their own culture. You know, they, they yeah. need their own world. My kids live in a house with like a ton of great art at their fingertips, like if they want it. And I will definitely point them to that if they express an interest. But you know, my son is into, you know, reading books about zombies right now, <laughs> you know, that's his thing. And that's cool that, you know, or he's into like, uh, there's this dude named the fat rat who's like a European DJ that's like huge on YouTube. Like he loves fat rat songs. And uh, I don't need to be playing him like Fun House by the Stooges. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, I, he's probably heard that record because like, yeah, I, I, same with one me, thing yes. I've been able to establish is that like in the van, I pick the music and I don't same do it here. like in a bullying way. I kind of do it like in a thoughtless way. They don't listen to kids music. Mm. Yep. They listen yep. to like regular music and sometimes they'll take an interest like my son heard another one bites the dust the other day by Queen, and he was like, "Who is this?" And I was like, "It's Queen." And I was like, "Do you like this song?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, I do." And I was like, "Yeah, it's a great song." So stuff like that will happen. So I like that idea of just kind of putting it in the background, 
eventually maybe they'll care. Maybe I, I just want them to care about something. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be music. I just want them to be passionate about something. And, and I think that they are about whatever it is that they're into like that week. Mm-hmm. So that makes me happy. Like they're both very curious kids. They just go through intense periods, like where they're into something for like three weeks or, or three months. Totally. And then yeah. they move on to the next thing. And that's what this age is for. Yeah, definitely. I have my, my two kids are 14 and 10. And that's exactly I tell Steve and Josh all the time. Okay, this week my son's into this. And then two months later, he's totally out of that. And now he's into something else. And it's funny you mentioned the Stooges and Funhouse. I literally just got it on vinyl. It's like one of my all-time favorite albums. I was blasting oh, it's it. it's unbelievable. I was blasting it the Amazing other day. Album. And like my son had no interest like whatsoever. <laughs> but Queen is also interesting <laughs> that you brought up because when the movie came out, I'm a huge Queen fan, my wife too. And we had been playing it in the house. And that was one band that definitely got through to them. Them and the Beatles. But when the movie came out, that only emphasized like their kind of love of Queen. They don't really listen to them anymore, but they know all the songs. If it comes on, they know all the lyrics to like all the hits. So that's another band where they've totally like like Queen. When I was a kid, I mean, Freddie Mercury died in 91. Mm -hmm. So there was that wave of interest in Queen and there was Wayne's World. World, Bohemian Rhapsody. They're so beloved now, Queen. Like they're so huge. And like you said, like they have an ability to reach kids. It's funny. We were at Dairy Queen the other week. There was a Weezer song playing, and I think I was trying to like explain. I was like, "Oh, this is Weezer, like <laughs> yeah, the Blue Album, like this." And I was trying. I was talking a little bit. I, I the went same, to like my explaining. I yeah. went to my rock critic shtick talking yep. about the Blue Album. They did not give a shit. At all. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like, they, they did not care. I know that feeling so well. I think I was in the middle of a sentence, and I, <laughs> and I realized that no one was listening, so I just stopped talking. <laughs> I just trailed off. I yes. was like, yeah, I felt like the biggest loser <laughs> in the world. It's like, yeah, why? It's like, they don't give a shit about Weezer. Like, why are you talking about Weezer? So, uh, we know that, you know, obviously you've announced your new book about Pearl Jam called Long Road. And we were just curious any other projects, if it's just that or if there's anything else that you can share just about what's coming up. I mean, that's the big thing I'm, I'm writing right now. I mean, there's always like other things that I have on the back burner. Yeah. And it's interesting with the Pearl Jam book because I had pitched this book originally right after I, I turned in the Radiohead book. And I think mm. I like turned in that proposal like the same month. It was just insane. Wow. wow. And the publisher originally didn't want to do it. My publisher that's put out my last few books, they issue were like, ah, we don't know if we really want to do this book. And I was really surprised and disappointed because I thought the proposal was pretty strong. And it just seemed like. There's not much written about Pearl Jam. There, there was a book yeah. that came out last year. So it's not yeah, a ton right. about them. And, and, and they have a huge loyal fan base. It just seemed like there was a built-in audience for it. Mm-hmm. Right. was like well do you want to take it out wider like to other publishers and in the moment i was like no not really near when this isn't happening was about to come out it actually did really well in pre-sales all of a sudden my publisher was like 
oh hey they, remember that Pearl Jam proposal I think we want to do that now nice so uh-huh. which was great I was like yeah because I still wanted to do it so that's how that came about we're huge Pearl Jam fans so oh there you go Huge. Well, yeah. Come back for that. That was like, you know, seminal band for us. Yeah, exactly. We should have you back for that, for sure. And this is something I explore a lot in the book, obviously. I mean, the, the subtitle of the book is Pearl Jam and the Soundtrack of a Generation. And it's really talking about, there's a lot of Gen X stuff in there. And, you know, with Pearl Jam, they are an interesting band in that I think now their legacy seems a little uncertain. I, I feel like yes. they don't get talked about hmm. as much as they should. I mean, they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They, mm-hmm. they can play stadiums. I mean, they're still obviously yep. like a very successful band, but in terms of like the dialogue about rock music of the last 30 years, I think I feel like Pearl Jam gets put on the back burner mm-hmm. more yeah. than they should. Agreed. And, you know, people forget like just how enormously popular they were mm-hmm. and how they really scaled that down. In yep. a way that was totally unprecedented, you know, and I think that's ultimately like what the book is going to be a, what the book is about, looking at Pearl Jam as survivors, because so many bands and people of their uh, cohort did not survive. And it's like, why did they yep. survive? And I think it's a really fascinating story. So you know that that's what I'm writing about in that book. And again, I hope people like it, and I'm excited for them to read it. So usually at the end, we always uh, have every person come on and pick either three new artists that they've been listening to, or it could be something that is like a hidden gem that you just need to kind of, you know, expose to the world. So if if there's anything you can think of off the top of your head. Oh, man, there's like so many new things I'm into, but I always feel like. When I'm put on the spot, I can never remember. <laughs> it's one of the hardest yeah, things. I know. There's a band called Illuminati Hotties. I don't know if you're familiar with them. No. They're a really good band. Uh, basically it's like a one woman project this woman named Sarah Tudson really good songwriter and producer and she makes really kind of snarky pop punk but then like (laughs) she can also she has enough stylistic range where she can also go from like a really snotty pop punk song to like a gorgeous alt country song and then to like a like an indie pop number she has a record called Let Me Do One More that I think is really great and I've been listening to it a lot. I feel like it's it could very possibly be one of the great albums of the year. So cool. I'd put that on your schedule. There's another band called Skirts cool. that I like a lot. Mm. This is another, it's kind of like a singer-songwriter project. Mm. Their first record called Great Big Wild Oak.
her, like, kind of like in that Lucy Dacus camp, just like really beautiful singer-songwriter stuff. There's also like some shades of Wilco, like late period Wilco on that record, Uh, but it's really good. And then it's a record called Due North. It's by a guy named Liam Kazar. He has some association with like some heavy hitters in the Chicago music scene. Like he's played in bands with Jeff Tweedy. I think he's been involved with Whitney maybe a little bit. Uh, mm. But his mm. his record Due North I like a lot. Like if you're into Mac DeMarco type stuff, he, he kind of reminds me of that at times. Ooh. So that's mm. a really good record. Oh. Uh, so yeah, I check out all three of those. I like those a lot. Awesome. Well, Steven, thanks so much for coming on the show. This was awesome. You have to come back on for sure. We have so much more to talk about. That would be fun. That'd be a blast. Thanks for listening to this episode and special thanks again to Steven Hyden for coming on the show. We had an absolute blast talking with him. I hope you really enjoyed it. You can catch Woodstock 99 on HBO Max. Highly recommend you check that out. Also check out all of Steven's music articles up on uprocks.com. You can follow him on Twitter. You should be following him on Twitter. One of the best Twitter follows, in my opinion, Steven underscore Hayden. Once again, thanks for listening to the show. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to please subscribe to the podcast. Tell your fellow music loving dads, moms, anyone to check it out. If you can, please give us a review. That'd be much appreciated. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at dadrockspod and also on Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or any show ideas, you can email us at dadrockspod at gmail.com. Also, we have a Spotify playlist of all the music you have heard on the podcast today, which should be linked in the podcast description. Thanks again for listening. And remember, dads, you rock.